Scriptures say we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is good. And that will be some kind of feast. And uh, we got a little feast here today after the service. Uh, You are invited to that. And every little feast we have together as the body of Christ, it is just a small taste of a much better feast that will go on in eternity because of what Christ has done for us. So man, praise God. I hope you can join us uh, today for uh, a feast, a little picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Our sermon text uh, today is in Acts chapter 5. If you're just joining us, uh, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. We're now in Acts chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 17, and we will be reading all the way through verse 42. Acts 5, 17 to 42. We will put all the scriptures on the screen today. I would encourage you though, if you do have a Bible with you, go ahead and look at the scriptures in your Bible so you know they're actually there and follow along with us uh, in the Bible. Let me just quickly set it up here. Uh, The book of Acts was written by uh, a man named Luke, a physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And Acts tells us what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven. He came to earth, he lived, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended up to heaven. And Acts then tells us how the twelve apostles and other early Christians, how they then went out to spread the news about this uh, Savior named Jesus. Uh, At this point in the book, Acts 5, the the early Christians are still primarily in Jerusalem where, where Christ was, was crucified. And in the passage right before this, um, Luke told us that the apostles were working all kinds of amazing miracles. Uh, people were coming from, from outlying areas to, for their loved ones to be healed by the apostles. Many people were coming to faith in Christ. And Luke said that the Jewish common people in Jerusalem, well, they held the apostles in high esteem. Uh, they didn't know exactly what was going on, but, the, but they knew God was somehow working through these apostles. They were, they were some kind of prophets or something. They held the apostles in great esteem. But we will see here in this passage that the Jewish leaders felt a little differently about the apostles. Let's go ahead and start with prayer as we get going here. Well, Father, we would just look to you now in and through Jesus Christ And we would ask now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Father, we we know unless the Holy Spirit enlightens our hearts, we will not receive anything from Your Word. So we just look to You, Father, humbly. You are the one who who inspired the Scripture. You breathed it out. Um, The Holy Spirit working through men to write this book down. And we would look to you, Father, and pray uh, to you, the one who breathed it out, that you would now illumine our hearts and help us to see truth, help us to see Christ in your Scripture. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, one thing we see clearly in the book of Acts is opposition. As the early Christians began to go out to to spread the news about this man, Jesus, well, well, many people received their message and came to Christ joyfully in faith. Uh, The early church just exploding in numbers, as we've seen in the early parts of the book of Acts. But right alongside that growth in the book of Acts, we've also seen opposition. Starting uh, very small in Acts chapter 4 with the arrest of just two apostles, Peter and, and John. But in this passage now, the opposition escalates and it will now continue throughout the book of Acts. And you know what? At the end of the book of Acts, the opposition then just continued under Roman Nero, uh, under Roman Emperor Nero, just after the book of Acts concludes, many Christians were imprisoned and executed. Under Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who believed Christianity to be dangerous, well, he turned a blind eye to outbreaks of severe mob violence against Christians. Under Emperor Diocletian, He issued four edicts 
that were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. Church buildings burned, scriptures confiscated, clergy tortured, and thousands of Christians executed. And this opposition then just continued all the way up to our present day. In many foreign countries today, the Christian church is frequently harassed, persecuted, martyred, even in this country. Maybe not martyrdoms, but, but still opposition, antagonism against Christians in, in the media, maybe, uh, uh, some sort of ridicule at work, maybe, slander, mocking on, on social media. In every age since the days of Christ, the gospel has been steadily spreading more and more followers of Christ around the globe. But along with that spread of the gospel, there has also been opposition. John Calvin said this. He said, we must realize that God is longing to shower blessings on His church, but we must also realize that God still allows His church to be harassed by the ungodly, so we must always be ready for the battle. And in this passage right here, we see opposition ramping up again against the twelve apostles, but we also learn here in this passage a very important lesson about opposition. And here's the lesson we learn here. We learn here that in the face of opposition, God can deliver His people. And nothing will ultimately stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and read it, starting in verse 17, Acts chapter 5. But the high priest rose up, And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus' blood, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel A teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. Well, we see two new waves of opposition against the apostles in this passage. An arrest and a trial. And on both occasions, God delivers the apostles. And the lesson is crystal clear. God can deliver His people and nothing will ultimately stop the spread of the gospel. Let's just work through these two waves of opposition here. The first wave of opposition is an arrest. The arrest we see at the start of this passage is actually the second arrest we've seen in the book of Acts now. But this arrest is an escalation from the first arrest. In Acts chapter 4, it was just Peter and John who were arrested for preaching Christ in the temple. But now it's all the twelve apostles arrested, imprisoned. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew, Philip, and so on. Verse 17 says that the high priest, along with the Sadducees, the the ruling religious party at this time, they all now rose up against the apostles and arrested them. It's easy to read right over that. You can miss the emotion there. I'm sure this was terrifying for the twelve apostles. Just weeks earlier, Jesus himself had been imprisoned by these same leaders and killed. And in Acts 4, when Peter and John were arrested, they had been warned by these leaders to stop preaching Christ in the temple. But they did not stop preaching Christ. And the apostles are probably now experiencing some very natural fear in prison as they await their fate. And and why did these leaders arrest the apostles here? Well, for starters, (laughs) pretty simple, the apostles had defied their orders. They had been commanded to stop preaching Christ. They did not stop preaching Christ. One reason they were arrested here. But you know what? There was another reason. A very subtle reason why these leaders arrested the apostles. If you look at the middle of verse 17. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. These religious leaders in Jerusalem were jealous of the twelve apostles. Luke had said in the previous passage up in verse 13, that when the apostles were working all these miracles in Jerusalem, well, the common people in Jerusalem held the apostles in high esteem. The common people were gathering around the apostles, not sure about what they were saying, but they were interested in the apostles. And then these leaders are jealous of the apostles' rising popularity. The Sadducees in particular, I'd I'd imagine, were were jealous of the apostles. They were the ruling party in, in Israel. They had authority. They had the praise and the respect of the people in Jerusalem. And now the the, the apostles are stealing some of their their thunder. They're they're stealing some of their esteem. And the leaders are thinking these crowds should be gathered around the educated. The religious rulers in Jerusalem. Not around this ragtag bag, this ragtag band of of common uh, fishermen and tax collectors. And they're jealous of the apostles. You know the feeling of jealousy. We all do. Even Christians. Christians are forgiven for their sin, but we do still sin, and jealousy among Christians is is very common. It's just this intense emotion in your heart. When other people are esteemed... 
When other people are recognized, when other people are, are rewarded, and you're not. It's just this, this resentment down inside just kind of simmering when, when someone else has success. Someone else is noticed and, and you're overlooked. And it's very possible you're, you're feeling some sort of jealousy now towards someone in this room or towards a coworker, or, or, or a friend or another family member. Maybe you're a mother and you're jealous of another mother here. Because of some attention she's receiving. Or, or maybe you're jealous because it looks like her children are succeeding in ways that your children are, are not succeeding. Or maybe you're jealous of, of a co-worker's promotion or a co-worker's raise and you, you, you can feel it in your heart. Or you want to know where a lot of Christians today experience jealousy? Facebook. Instagram. You, you look at someone else's Facebook page. All these pictures, and they, they just seem so happy. It just seems so, so prosperous. And no, no trials, so unlike your life. Even though everybody's Facebook page, to some degree, is a facade. It tells only part of the story. It almost always hides the more painful parts of that life. Almost always presents just the better parts of that life. But you look at that and you just figure their life is better than yours and you feel it. The jealousy inside. And jealousy Listen, wherever it's found, it can cause some serious relationship problems. Gustav Mahler, or Gustav Mahler, however you pronounce his name, great composer, was insanely jealous of another composer's abilities, namely his own fiancés, Alma Schindler, great composer in her own right, and Gustav Mahler could not handle the attention she received. So, not a very bright move, but on their wedding day, wrote her a note, said, quote, from now on, there will only be my music. Not our music, but my music. A marriage doomed to fail. And it did. Jealousy kills relationships. One of the reasons God warns Christians repeatedly in the Bible to be on guard against jealousy in their hearts. Romans 13, 13 says this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Or James 3.16, for, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, and it's jealousy in these leaders here that has now caused them to imprison the apostles. Vile practice just flowing out of them, uh, rooted in, in jealousy. Verse 19 here in our passage says that these leaders put the apostles in a public prison. So most likely some sort of prison here that, that was accessible or, or visible to the public. A public humiliation. You know, if you go back a hundred years or so, it's very common to put prisoners in stocks in, in the city square. These, these boards that kind of locked their, their neck and their, their hands in place it was very public humiliation. And that was essentially what these leaders are attempting to do to the apostles. A, a public humiliation so that the, the common people in Jerusalem who were highly esteeming the apostles would now see them imprisoned. Humiliation. But we need to understand here Man, like every instance like this in the Bible where we see opposition, we need to understand who was ultimately behind it. 
It wasn't ultimately just these leaders, but the powers of darkness behind them. Satan hates God. Satan hates Christ. Satan hates Christians and all that they stand for. And, and when Christians, when, when, when God begins to stir up Christians like these, to spread the good news about Christ, Satan will oppose them. He will stir up flesh and blood to resist, to harass, to mock, slander, persecute, like these leaders here, motivated by the powers of darkness. And God delivers his people from this arrest. Very miraculously, if you look again at verse 19, Luke says that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Easy to just read over that passage. Just stop for a minute. You know what? There have been some some pretty unique jailbreaks in history. <laughs> you just look up unique jailbreaks and start reading. Here's a couple I got this week. 1986, Michael Vajour, imprisoned in Paris, forced his way onto the prison roof, got by the guards by wielding nectarines that he had painted to look like hand grenades. <laughs> and they all backed off, afraid of his fruit. <laughs> and he gets up to the, the roof of the prison where his wife then picked him up in a helicopter, which he had just learned how to fly. Or there was a man named Choi Gabak. Small man, 5'5", 115 pounds, in a South Korean prison, used his time in prison wisely, uh, got very good at yoga. And he then rubbed his body with ointment and wiggled his way through an 18-inch by 6-inch food slot on his cell door. And he escaped until he was recaptured and put in a cell with a much smaller food slot. <laughs> that was Choi Gabak. Uh, but listen, there is no jailbreak in history <laughs> that was maybe as unique or as easy as this one right here. An angel, Luke says, at night. And, and how crazy would that have been? <laughs> if you're the 12 apostles in this prison, fearing for your life, a knock on the prison door, and it is actually an angel. What's the light shining through our door here? Oh, wow, that's an angel. And the angel then either stuns the guard somehow, or he maybe just blinded and, and deafened them Somehow, he opens the doors and the apostles <laughs> simply walk out <laughs> right past the guards. And God does have a sense of humor. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, come on. Do you know these Sadducees here who were the men who put the, the apostles in prison? Well, they didn't believe in angels. <laughs> so God thinks, hmm, how will I free my apostles? Why don't I just send an angel <laughs> to let the apostles loose? And now they're free. But God doesn't let them just run off to the hills to find safety. <laughs> oh, no. You look at verse 20, the angel says to them, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The very thing that just got you imprisoned, why don't you go right back and do it again? Tell the people all the words of this life, this, this, this eternal life they can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell them about Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And verse 21 says, the apostles then entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach the people. That is some serious Holy Spirit guts right there in the apostles. That is not natural. That is Holy Spirit. But there they are, heading right back into the temple to do it again. If you've ever spent time at the beach, man, you know that if you want to get out into that deeper water when the waves are really high, you want to get out and swim or surf or something like that, 
then you know you have to dive directly into that wave. If you just try to walk through the wave or you just stand there, that thing will smack you back onto the beach, <laughs> minus some skin on your knees. So you, 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 you dive into it, though, and you just pop up on the other side. And the apostles now essentially dive directly into this wave of opposition, imprisoned for preaching, and God tells them to go right back to it. You know what? There is definitely a time when Christians should go in the other direction when there's a wave of opposition. There's a time for that. Jesus, back in Matthew 10, he said to these apostles here, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And they will actually flee out of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen is stoned. But it's not time to flee. There is also a time when you dive headlong into opposition. And that's how God directs these apostles right now, sending them right back into that storm. So man, that's, that's one wave here, this one wave of opposition that we see here, this arrest, and God delivers His apostles very miraculously. And the lesson is clear. God can deliver His people, and nothing will ultimately stop the spread of the gospel. And the second wave of opposition here is then a trial with a subsequent beating. An arrest, and then the second one is a a trial here. Verse 21 says that the next morning, when the apostles should still have been in prison, the high priest called together the council, the, the Sanhedrin, it is the, the, the highest legal court in, in Israel, 71 men, including the high priest, and they are called together here for an official interrogation of these apostles, only one problem, no apostles. <laughs> they, they send for them in, in the morning, and the prison guards are still there. Luke says uh, the, 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 the door is still securely locked, but no prisoners. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a little comical. Verse 24, Luke says that the council was then greatly perplexed. <laughs> and I'll bet they were. What happened to the men? <laughs> where did where, they go? How did they get out? Did you find nectarines? <laughs> in front of, the, front of the door, maybe the helicopter uh, above, the, above the prison? It's a head-scratcher for the council. And man, this was, this was <laughs> humiliating for the council. Because... Luke says in verse 25, a guy then walks in and says, um, those guys you jailed for preaching in the temple? Well, they're preaching in the temple <laughs> right now as we speak. So they send and, and they rearrest the apostles, not by force this time, Luke says, because the leaders are scared of the common people, that they'll rise up and stone them for doing something to the apostles. But they go and arrest them gently, I guess, and, and bring them in. For this interrogation, legal examination by the highest Jewish council, the same council that had recently voted to execute Christ. And here the apostles come. And these apostles, as they enter the room, they have defied this council on several occasions now. And this council's not happy. If you look again at verse 28. The high priest says, we strictly charged you. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name of Jesus. You hear you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We commanded you not to, not to preach Christ. And all you've done is preach Christ. He's just filled this entire city with this guy's name. And you keep blaming us for his death. You intend to bring the guilt of this man's blood upon us. And these leaders apparently forgot that when Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate wanted to let him go, 
These leaders condemned Jesus, saying, crucify him. His blood be on us and on his children. And now they're angry, saying, you apostles are attempting to bring his blood on us. No, they brought the blood on themselves. But, but here the apostles are now. The high priest is looking at them. We told you not to preach Christ. All you've done is preach Christ. What do you say for yourself? And how do the apostles respond here? Well, they preach Christ. If you look again at verse 29. I'm sorry, let me back up a second. They preach Christ here. You know why? Because that's what Jesus had taught them to do. If you look here at Luke 21, 12, Jesus had said this to his apostles when he was with them. He said, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to witness. So here they are in front of this Sanhedrin council. They have a chance to die here for preaching Christ and they bear witness about Christ. You look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You, you charged us to shut up, but God charged us to preach Christ, and we must obey God. And Peter then preaches. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Man, you talk about Holy Spirit God's right here. Oh my word. And, and Peter there in just 35 words or so in the English language, he just gave a beautiful summation of the gospel message about Christ. If you never heard the, the gospel story in the Bible before, well, well, there it is in short order. Four simple points. One, Jesus was killed, Peter says crucified to pay for the sin of the world, to pay for your sin, to pay for my sin. Number two, Jesus was then raised, Peter says. God the Father uh, raised him a new resurrected body, proving that he had paid the full penalty for sin. Number three, Jesus was then exalted, Peter says. Exalted as leader and Savior. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's now the one and only true Savior, the one and only true leader of God's people, leading us into eternal life. And number four, how do you receive this great salvation of Jesus? Well, Peter talks about repentance and forgiveness. You turn away from your sin in, 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 in repentance. You turn away broken-hearted repentance. You cling to Christ in, in faith and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. It's amazing what Peter says there. He doesn't say that you have to do all kinds of great things to receive forgiveness from God. No, he doesn't say that. You just come to Christ as a sinner. You just sang about it in the hymn, Rock of Ages. I had no idea Levi was going to sing that song today. You just sang about it. The, the free gift that comes when you come to Christ as a sinner. It's Augustus Top Lady's hymn. If you go ahead and put that up there. I love the name, Augustus Top Lady. I'm going to name my next child, Augustus Top Lady. Just hear this. Hear this. Receive it. Here's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Nothing in my hand I bring. No works of your own to enter heaven. You don't have to do great things to enter heaven. You don't have to bring any money and pay for heaven. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. I come just as I am in all my sin. And I just come to you. Will you please clothe me? Helpless. I cannot help myself. Helpless. I look to you for grace. Foul sinner. I to the fountain fly. The fountain of Jesus Christ's blood. Wash me Savior or I die. And please hear me. If you come to Christ like that, you just come as a broken-hearted sinner and you cry out to God for mercy. You cling to Christ and follow Christ in faith. Jesus will wash you. The forgiveness of sins. And man, Peter has now preached Christ to the highest Jewish council who was wanting to kill him already for preaching Christ. The council that recently commanded them to stop. Peter just diving headlong here into that wave of opposition almost gets 
the apostles killed. But once again, God delivers just now through one man on the council. If you look at verse 33, when they heard this, Peter's preaching about Christ, they were enraged. And it it literally means, the Greek word literally means they were cut to the heart. They, 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 They were sawn in two split open with rage, infuriated at the apostles, and wanted to kill them for their capital insubordination. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care which you are about to do with these men. You may know the name Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most famous rabbis in history, really. The Jewish Mishnah, after Gamaliel's death, said this about him. Since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. This man, Gamaliel, was a highly respected man, and he was the rabbi who at this time was actually training the Apostle Paul to be a Pharisee. Paul still called Saul at this time. You get the picture here. Saul was maybe standing outside the door on this occasion listening through the wall with his little Dixie cup at what was going on inside the room. And, and Paul now hears Gamaliel speak out to the council, saying, be careful, men, what you do now with these apostles. And Gamaliel then gives two examples from Israel's history. Two rebellions that have, had begun to rise up, two insurrections that had died out on their own. Gamaliel first mentions this man, Thutis, led a rebellion uh, with 400 followers, and Thutis was eventually killed, his, his followers dispersed. And Gamaliel then mentions this man, Judas, the Galilean, who, who also led a rebellion and was also killed, his followers also scattered. And he gives these two examples to the council, and Gamaliel then makes this point. If you look at verse 38 again. So he says, in the present case, with these men here, I tell you, keep away from them and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. If this thing about Jesus is just of man, a creation, a man's own mind, it will fail. On its own, self-destruct, God will make sure of it. But if this thing is of God, and you try to stop it, you will not be able to overthrow them. And, You will ultimately be opposing God Himself. And for the time being now in Acts, cooler heads prevail. And they listen to Gamaliel. Look at the end of verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And the beating was probably... The 39 lashes that the Jews typically gave. First time ever that Christians, Christ followers, were beaten for Christ. And it has happened countless times since then. And after beating them, the council charged them yet again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name. They left rejoicing in their trials. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin just heaping dishonor on the apostles. And yet they know that they have been considered worthy to receive honor. In the very fact that they received the dishonor from the Sanhedrin. And they walk out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer on account of Christ. That's what Jesus had taught them to do. Back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had said to these apostles, He said, blessed are you. When others persecute you on my account, rejoice on that day. Leap for joy. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. And they know now, they know now as they leave, they've been counted worthy to suffer like Christ. And they know their reward in heaven will be great for what they just received. Richard Wormbrand, a Christian preached Christ and he suffered greatly in a Romanian prison. His captors whipped him repeatedly, ripping out chunks of flesh. He was in solitary confinement for months, no one speaking to him. And yet, amazingly, Richard Wormbrand said that there were times in his tiny little solitary confinement prison cell when he was so overcome with joy that he would stand up in his weakened state and he would dance in his cell confident that the angels in heaven were dancing with him, confident that his reward in heaven was great. That his reward in heaven would make all of his imprisonment and beatings look in the end like light momentary afflictions. And when Richard Wormbrand was ultimately released from prison unexpectedly, he left this emaciated dress like a scarecrow, terrible shape, his teeth rotten, and he met a peasant woman carrying a basket of strawberries. And she offered him one. And he started to take it, and he said, no thanks. I think I'll fast. And he went home to his wife and they prayed and they fasted and they gave thanks to God for the joy that he experienced in prison and asked God for the same type of joy now outside of prison. Rejoicing in persecution like these apostles right here for your reward is great in heaven and once again they are charged here by this council as they leave strictly ordered to stop preaching Christ so what do they do well they preach Christ again if you look down at verse 42 and every day now in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. We must preach Christ. And once again, they just dive directly into this wave of opposition and in the temple and from house to house, they do not cease teaching and preaching Christ. So man, you look at this passage, there's these two new waves of opposition here against these early Christians, this arrest, and then this trial with, with a beating. And, and on both occasions, in different ways, God, God, God delivers His apostles here. And man, the lesson in this passage is just clear. Listen, Christians in this life, we will get hit with opposition. It's just the way it is for Christians on this planet If you're a disciple now, you're trusting in in Christ, you're following Christ in faith, then just expect it. 
Just expect it, especially when you work with other believers to, to, to actually spread the gospel of Jesus. And it, is, it won't ultimately just be flesh and blood that rises up against you. It will be the powers of darkness. Our war is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against the, the, the spirits of, uh, in heavenly places. And they will oppose. They will stir up flesh and blood to resist Christians, especially when we work together to spread the gospel. But man, here's the all-important lesson in this passage. It is so valuable for us to understand. God can deliver His people, and nothing will ultimately stop the spread of the gospel. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But let me tell you what that means when I say that God can deliver His people. That does not mean that God will always deliver his people physically in opposition. It does not mean that he will always snatch the lives of his people from the jaws of death every single time we're persecuted. No, God can do that, like right here, but God doesn't always deliver his people from death. These apostles here, they were all delivered from death right here, but later... Christian history tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles were all ultimately martyred, killed on the crown of Christ, Peter crucified upside down, James beheaded, James the less thrown from a high pinnacle, Matthew killed by a sword, Philip hanged, Bartholomew scourged to death, Andrew bound to a cross and still preaching at the top of his lungs till he died, Thomas run through with a lance, Jude killed by executioner's arrows, Matthias stoned, Simon the zealot sawn in two, and thousands of other Christians since then also martyred. God not, not delivering them from a physical death, but God, for reasons we may never know, actually delivering them over to a physical death. But please hear me. Even in death, God still delivers His people who trust in Christ. De- delivers them instantly into an eternal heaven with Him. And they then receive all the rewards of their sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 1.21 that for a Christian to die is gain. God, God either delivers his people from death or God delivers his people through death. But either way, God, God delivers his people. And man, listen, every last bit of opposition that God's people face in this life, even martyrdom, it just spreads the gospel even more. There's nothing like Christian martyrs to spread the gospel around the globe. There's nothing like Christian persecution because outsiders look in at that and they say, you must really believe it. And they see in our sufferings a little bit of the sufferings of Christ. It is ultimately so powerful, it just spreads the gospel even more. Tertullian, Early Christian leader, 200s AD, he addressed the rulers of the Roman Empire on one occasion. He cried out and he said this, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So, whether Christians escape martyrdom like these apostles at this time or, or whether Christians die in martyrdom like these apostles later down the line, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the lesson in this passage remains rock solid true. God can deliver his people. God will deliver his people. Every single person who trusts in Christ, God will deliver you. And nothing will ultimately stop or thwart the spread of the gospel. It will ultimately reach every people group on this planet. Jesus has promised that it would be so. And it's heading there right now. I'll end with this. Gamaliel, this unbeliever here. Man, he says something so very profound about the Christian faith. He says, if this thing about Jesus is just of man, it will fail, fall apart, self-destruct, come to nothing. But if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And here we sit 2,000 years later. 
And the Christian faith is stronger than ever. Millions of disciples around the world and nobody has been able to overthrow it. Why? Because it's of God. So don't resist it. Or you will be found to be opposing God Himself. Turn to Christ in faith. Follow Christ. And listen, when that opposition then comes against you as a Christian, man, be strong. Be courageous by the grace of God. Yeah, there's a time to flee, but there's a time to dive right into that opposition. May God help you. God can, will, delivers people, and nothing will ultimately stop the spread of the gospel. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for just this reminder, this comfort from you that, that nothing can ultimately stop the gospel and that, Lord God, you will deliver your people. Though Satan rages against your church, in Christ Jesus, his rage we can endure. And we believe nothing happens outside of your eternal plan. Every martyrdom has ultimately been ordained by you. We can see it clearly in the book of Revelation. No martyrdom happens by surprise or it is slipped in on you by Satan. You're ultimately in control of all things, even the persecution suffering of your people. And we thank you, Father, that this life is not the end of the story. That this is just a small little dot compared to the line of eternity that comes next. And everything that happens here in this life, Lord, every blow, every, every word of slander, every word of mocking that we receive on account of Christ, great is our reward in the next life. You will deliver us. We thank you for it, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.